the reading of the scriptures from Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 8. So, uh, let's hear the word of God uh, with faith and also with uh, thankfulness that God has spoken and has preserved His Word uh, in the Holy Bible. Again, Isaiah chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows Peace. It is certainly the clear teaching of the Word of God that God is uh, able and uh, powerful to save. So why isn't He? Uh, some in Israel have the same question, and uh, the answer, of course, is in our text this morning. Uh, that God is able to save, and that is the pronouncement of the first two verses. But He does not save in the case of Israel uh, because of their sin, uh, verses 3 to 8. Uh, essentially, uh, the words of the prophet are engaging us uh, with an understanding uh, that it is entirely improper to say that you believe in God, but that you remain in your sin, which is exactly what Israel is doing, and which, of course, is exactly what many people do uh, in our own culture. They confess to know God, but they do not repent. They refuse to repent. They hold on to their sin. They love their sin, and yet they want to, in tandem, uh, believe in God and then wonder why God is not doing great and mighty things as he promises. Uh, well, let's begin with the first proposition that God is able. Uh, God is able because he's a sovereign creator. God is able because he is omnipotent. He's full of power and glory, and that he can manifest his will at any point in time and do whatever he wills because he is God. And whatever he does is right because he is God. And so he is able to save uh, the uh, words of the Apostle Paul in uh, the book of Romans in the 16th chapter. Romans chapter 16, 
In the 25th, pardon me, yes, the 25th uh, verse. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. That God is able to save and establish His church because of His power. Whoever He saves, He keeps and preserves and He establishes them. That the entire benediction here in doxology is based upon the fact that God is able. Uh, my own favorite benediction, uh, Jude verse 24. Everyone is slipping away from the faith. Men are falling away in droves. And yet, Jude reminds us at the end, not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The power of God. Everyone slips away except those whom are kept by God because of the power of God. If it wasn't for the power of God, all of us would slip away. We would believe only momentarily. Uh, but God is a great God and a great Savior. And those whom He saves, He keeps. How could He do otherwise? Uh, because of the power of God. And we find, of course, the same in Isaiah chapter 57 and the 15th verse. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on high in a holy place, and also with a contrite and lowly of spirit, in order, New American Standard reads, to revive the spirit of the lowly. Uh, I think there's a better translation, literally to make alive. Uh, who is able to make alive. Because he's creator, he grants life. He's the creator of life, and he's also the creator of death. He creates light and darkness uh, because he is God. Uh, their complaint is that the hand of the Lord is too short, so he's not able to save. The figures in anthropomorphism whereby a defective hand is attributed to God. Of course, God is a spirit, doesn't have hands. It's a figure of speech. Uh, but it's a profound figure of speech and that they're saying, well, God, your hand is uh, is withered and it's really too weak and so uh, you want to say, but you can't. Again, it's folly. Uh, the parallel is that God is hard of hearing so he cannot answer the cry for salvation. Uh, again, uh, terrible ways to look at God. Uh, terrible ways to ascribe to God that he is really unable to save. He wants to, but he can't. Uh, of course, uh, it's a great theological problem in the church today that we have a very low view of God. That God wants to do something, but he's not able. Well, again, if that statement is true, then he's not God. Uh, it might be something else. Maybe he's Superman or a powerful person. Uh, but if someone can stop God saving... Uh, that which he wishes, or those whom he wishes to save, then he is not God. God has no defective hand. He does not need hearing aids. He hears the cries of his people, and he saves because of his power. It's a great reminder of the children of Israel crying because of the slavery of Pharaoh, and God comes and defeats Pharaoh through a lowly shepherd. But even worse than that, God hears the cries of his people because of Satan and the great burden of sin. He hears their cries and he comes and he defeats Satan through the lowliness of the cross. 
that God is able to destroy the most powerful force in human history, namely the force of evil, through the lowest event in the life of the Savior, namely being distended upon a cross and suffering the agonies of crucifixion, that even at his weakest point, he can destroy the strong man and bind him and then plunder his kingdom because of the power of God and the Savior. So they have a low view of God. Many Christians have a very low view of God. Uh, you cure that through the scriptures. But there's something else that's troublesome here. They have a low view of sin. Uh, and that's exactly their problem, that they can continue to believe in God, but yet remain in their sin, as if that's no big deal. I think that's epidemic in our culture today. Uh, so what, I'm sinning. God will get over it. Uh, or uh, God's asleep and he won't know. Uh, no, God knows all things in one eternal moment. Uh, but again, they have a low view of sin. Again, I would add that God is sovereign and saves those whom he wills to save and nothing can get in his way or stop him uh, or prevent him from doing and fulfilling all of his desires. Uh, if there is something that can stop him, he's not God. Uh, he may just be another powerful force in the pantheon of gods of our corrupt world, but it's not the God of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 50, uh, in verse 2, is a reminder of the God that we worship. Uh, why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die uh, for thirst. It's a reminder of the great power of God in the Exodus. Uh, he confronts Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is going to attempt to destroy the children of Israel, and God commands the sea, and the sea makes a way. I would commend you the reality that only God can do that. Stand on the coast of California sometime and command the Pacific Ocean to make a way for you. And you know what? Nothing will happen. Only God can do that. Uh, the children of Israel entered the land... The priest, the moment their foot stepped into the Jordan River, it divided because God was effecting a new exodus. Stand before the Columbia River and command it to make a way for you. And you know what? Nothing will happen. Only God can do that. God has, and he does, and he will. This uh, salvation is recapitulated for us in Revelation chapter 12, that God makes a way for us from the deceptions of the power of the dragon, because God continually manifests his power to save and to keep his people. And none of his people are lost because of the power of God. Again, Isaiah in chapter 15, verse 2, is simply recapitulating the power of God in the exodus and the creation. Well, notwithstanding this theology, the children of Israel, as so many today, have a wrong way to get to God, and that is that they uh, can believe in God but uh, not repent of their sin. And what that does is set in motion the intensification of uh, sin in the life of the nation. And that's really what follows uh, uh, in the rest of the text. Uh, the real issue is not the failure of God, 
It's the failure of the nations, the failure of the people uh, with their low view of God and their low view of sin. Uh, They confess to believe, but remain in sin. And here the prophet will establish the terrible spiritual conditions of their spiritual life and the extensiveness of their depravity that makes them unable, because that's exactly what sin does, renders us unable. Of course, you and I can trace that theologically all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the failure of our forefather Adam. So in verse 2, Isaiah states that your iniquity separates you from me, God says. That sin creates a separation, a gulf so vast that it cannot be bridged by man. Because man is unable. Man affects the chasm and man is unable to bridge it because of human failure. The parallel is that God hides from them because of their sin and will not answer their call. What follows in the text uh, is very interesting in terms of repetition, but there are some 24 accusations that God makes of them in terms of their spiritual condition, uh, respecting their own inability uh, to deal with sin. It's devastating in its totality. Uh, The essence is that they have uh, fallen in love uh, with their fallen spiritual condition. Prophet Jeremiah uh, speaks to this in the 13th chapter, in the 23rd verse, uh, when he, he says, Then you also, can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? Rhetorical question. They cannot do good because they love their evil. So it's not that God is not powerful to save. It's that they love their sin and refuse to repent. And so God doesn't act. Uh, They confess to believe, but they want to remain in their sin. Of course, that is a massive contradiction. The explanation of their condition begins uh, in verse 3. First, your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips speak falsehood. The Septuagint has uh, lawlessness. Uh, The parallel is that your tongues mutter wickedness. Again, constant repetition reminding them of their fallen estate. Uh, From the standpoint of the theocracy, they have perverted the legal system. Uh, The entire government of Israel is corrupt. And so what do you get when the government is corrupt? You get corruption everywhere. Uh, Verse 4, they trust in confusion. It's a very interesting word. Uh, the Hebrew word is tohu. It's the same word found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. That the world was formless and void. What has happened in the fallen condition of the nation of Israel that they created massive spiritual confusion so that there's no form and there's no order. That everything is chaos. And so they speak lies. They conceive trouble. They give birth to iniquity. A metaphor of a woman pregnant with with sin, delivering iniquity and rebellion. Uh, In fact, he calls their children, he names their children rebellion and ruin. Uh, In verses uh, 5 and 6, the prophet turns to comparisons from nature 
another figure of speech, zoomorphism. He's going to attribute to the nation the likeness of the beasts of the field uh, in terms of spiders and snakes. My favorite creatures, spiders and snakes. Somewhat instructive because uh, the nation of Israel sinned in the wilderness. God sent snakes to bite them, and now they're all snakes. Uh, he likens them to poisonous snakes and spiders with particular emphasis on the eggs of the snakes and the web of the spiders, that they give birth to vipers. It's a very unsettling figure of speech. Uh, because snakes produce snakes after their own kind. As well, they are like spiders that produce webs to catch their prey. Uh, could mean, I think, in another figure of speech, that everything that they do will be undone. It's like you as a housekeeper. You come across a spider's web in your home. You get your broom and you give it a couple... Uh, smacks of the broom and the spider web is gone. Momentarily, of course, but, uh, but in the case, uh, they are manufacturing false hopes and building spider's webs and God will sweep them all away. Uh, the webs they spin are works of violence and evil uh, that will not cover their shame. Uh, again, they think iniquity and devastation and destruction are their highways, Isaiah says. Remember one of my soldiers uh, uh, in my battalion uh, had uh, fought in Iraq and he came back with a number of pictures of, uh, of what was uh, later called the Highway of Death. A retreating Iraqi army was caught on a highway and American air power totally totally and devastating, devastatingly destroyed them so that all along the highway were burned vehicles and bodies of utter destruction. The prophet Isaiah is saying, that is your spiritual estate. Utter destruction and ruin, a highway of destruction. The last verse is, is most instructive of Isaiah chapter 59 uh, because it is counter to exactly the way of God who is the way of peace. That God... Uh, makes a way of peace in terms of reconciliation. They want none of God's reconciliation and they want nothing to do with his peace. If you have your Old Testament, uh, Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 8, they do not know the way of peace. They don't wish to know it. They don't want to know it. They want to reject it. God in his grace establishes peace. They want nothing to do with it. There's no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Notice how the text ends. It's a figure of speech. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Technically, it's called inclusio. He begins with peace. He concludes with peace. They want none of it. They want crookedness and perversion. That's their path. That's their exodus. Uh, their pilgrims do not know peace. Uh, as you may or may not know, Paul, the apostle, uh, cites Isaiah 59, uh, verse 8, in Romans chapter 3, to establish for us the devastating reality of our own spiritual condition, the fallenness of man that you and I theologically know as total, total, irrevocable depravity. Romans chapter 3, 
verses 15 to 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. And near, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, look at the totality of it, though, uh, from verses 10 to 12. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. The effect of the fall of Adam has rendered this spiritual condition upon all of humanity. That all of the progeny of Adam are born with an entire inclination to evil and an entire absence of holiness and goodness. So much so that all mankind by their fall have lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse and made liable to all of the miseries of this life, death itself and the pains of hell forever. So says the Puritans, given the theology of the Apostle Paul and the prophet Isaiah, the spiritual condition of mankind because of the fall of Adam is one of an utter, utter, total wasteland. And that man is, in his own devices, irrevocably lost with no hope whatsoever. Now, I understand the vast majority of religion says, no, that's not true. We're not totally depraved. There's a spark of goodness within our hearts. And if we blow on it hard enough, life will come. And then we can lift up ourselves by our own bootstraps and do some good things, and God will be so pleased with us. My friend, that flies in the face of the words of the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Paul. There is none who does good, no, not one. All have turned aside. You parse the language. I simply give to you the words of Isaiah and the Apostle Paul. That men are born spiritually dead. There's an old spiritual saw, of course, it's applicable here. If you feel far from God, who do you think moved? Mankind is fallen in Adam. And so the spiritual wasteland of... Uh, the children of Israel and the prophet Isaiah, of course, is deep and profound. And God will not deliver them because they're playing around with their theology. Well, we'll believe in God and remain our sin. He'll be so happy with us, won't he? No, he won't be. He describes their terrible spiritual condition. And ultimately, of course, they are unable to save themselves. And if left alone, it means total, final disaster. That's the way of man in love with sin, in love with rebellion, in love with crookedness and perverseness, destroys everything it touches. Well, thankfully, uh, the record of the prophet Isaiah does not leave us there. Uh, there's the way of God. Uh, the failure of the nation gives rise to the actions of God to effect restoration in a new creation by his appointed servant son, I've just recounted for you the storyline of the final chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah. Let me say it again. The failure of the nation gives rise to the actions of God to effect restoration in a new creation by his appointed servant son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that Christ will come to us as the new Israel and reconstitute Israel in himself and effect restoration by the power of a new creation, and he is that creator. And so while the nation is in profound spiritual trouble, God in grace will act as he always does in the servant son. While men are not able to save, God is and God does. Let's look at some illustrations of this. God's power to save. That God interdicts some men. Many men, of course, but not all men. Isaiah chapter 6, in verses 6 and 7, the prophet himself. Verse 5 is his spiritual trouble. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. point of that text is that God from his throne acts to save the prophet. I don't know if you remember uh, some of my previous teaching on this, but this is a parody against idolatry. In the idolatrous culture of the nation of Israel and the pagan nations, uh, a craftsman would make an idol. Uh, before the idol was put into service, there would be a mouth-cleansing ceremony so that the idol could then be engaged by the false god of the idol. Here, this is a parody. Uh, god is cleansing the mouth of the prophet to make him fit to speak the word of God and not the false words of an idol, which, of course, uh, the nation was steeped heavily in serving and worshiping. Of course, idolatry is a profound sin of our own culture. We need the grace of God to bring burning coals to cleanse our lips and to save us and to forgive us and that is the hope of the people of God. It's another great profound expression of the power of God to save, just like he saved Isaiah. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3, in verses 4 and 5. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head, speaking of the high priest. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. But the point here, verse 4, Remove the filthy garments from him. See, I have taken away your iniquity, away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. That God is reconstituting the clothes of the high priest. God taking the initiative. God clothing the priest and the power of God uh, to cleanse the high priest uh, before the nation. It's a New Testament analog here that's most profound. The words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 3. That God, verse 2, clothes us with our dwelling from heaven inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. That God clothes us so that we will not be ashamed before him. And God provides the clothing in the death and resurrection of his son. 
most profound expression of this in my own estimation is Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8. Uh, something of an echo again of Adam and Eve when they fell. They knew that they were naked and they tried to cover their nakedness by uh, sewing some leaves together and it will not count for God. That God kills an animal and clothes them. That God provides the clothing. The way of God is to provide sacrifice to cover his people. And so we read in Revelation 19, verse 8, and it was given to her, the church. Notice it was given. God does the giving. God makes the provisions, the grace of God. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That God makes the provision, the grace of God. That all of us stand before God in His holiness and His perfections. He knows we are naked, but He acts to close us in His sovereign grace and the provision of Christ upon the cross. Yeah. The end state, of course, of this is captured for us in a most beautiful way in Luke's Magnificat, chapter 1, in verse 779. Luke chapter 1, verse 79 to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. They didn't want peace, so God makes it for us in Jesus Christ. Where men fail, God succeeds, and nothing can get in His way, and nothing can stop Him because of who He is. That He can overcome the totality and extensiveness of depravity. It's captured for us again in the major themes of the prophet Isaiah. Let's look at three such themes. Uh, the servant's son. He deals chiefly with sin. The nation of Israel, in the first coming of Christ, were looking for a political savior because they didn't understand the prophet Isaiah, that Christ would come first and foremost to deal with sin. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused, caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That our sin was imputed to Christ, and his righteousness was imputed to us. That Christ and the servant son deals with sin to bridge the separation between God and His people. The other great theme of the prophet Isaiah, certainly beginning in chapter 40, is that new exodus, that God is going to establish a new exodus in Christ. Again, it's going to parallel the exodus from Egypt. But now it's not going to be by Moses, it's going to be by Christ. Now it's not going to be by Pharaoh that Christ is going to bind the power of the forces of evil to gather his people. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, John the Baptist quotes Isaiah chapter 40, a reminder that Christ is going to be the new way, the new exodus. Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 to 3. 
I'm just simply going to read verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. A new straight way. Their way was crooked. The exodus now established and accomplished by Christ is going to be a straight way. Uh, this theme is everywhere in the latter chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah. Let me read a couple of verses to you. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 10. They will not hunger or thirst, neither will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. Fulfilled, I think, partially in the return from the Babylonian captivity under Ezra and Nehemiah, but the failure of the nation establishes for us the anticipation of a greater fulfillment in Christ, that he will lead us. And so Christ dispatches his spirit like the pillar of fire, the pillar of the cloud to lead his people uh, to the promised land of eternal life. Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 10. Was it not thou who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? Again, uh, captured in a very partial way in the return, Ezra and Nehemiah, but fulfilled in the greatest of ways in the coming of Christ. That you and I are surrounded by seas of deception. Revelation chapter 12, and Christ establishes dry ground that we might escape uh, the forces of deception to continue our journey of the last great exodus to heaven. By the way, there's a great illustration here in the institution of marriage, Genesis 2.24. You want to understand the exodus? Uh, God, God says, Adam and Eve, you leave, you leave and you cleave. That's what we do in the new exodus. We leave the city of destruction of this world, and we cleave to Christ and the greatness of His Spirit who will see us to the other side. The other great theme of Isaiah is a new creation out of chaos and confusion. That Christ comes as the last great creator and He begins a spiritual creation. His new people, a new Israel in Himself because He is the true Israel. Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 20. That they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. All of that theology swirls into great verses like Colossians chapter 1. Christ, the head, the creator who creates the church as the new people of God. It's a reminder that there is hope in this, in this day of light. Because God comes to your heart and He sees devastation, ruin, and darkness and blackness. And what does God do in Jesus Christ? Christ says, let there be light. And there is light. Because of the power of God. And the darkness cannot stop the light of the sovereign Creator, the Lord. Again, a reminder of the ability of Christ to save His people captured for us in something of the words of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Not to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. The power of the sovereign creator. Uh, thanks. 
be to God that it is so, for if it were any other way, we would remain in love of our sin and rebellion. Once again, God is sovereign in the application of His power. It's the reality that men are entirely responsible for their fallen creation, and God is entirely able to save all whom He wills to save. And that salvation includes the gift of repentance. That when He saves, uh, we leave our sin and we cleave to Him in the hope that He will see us to the other side. Well, Isaiah is telling us nothing more or less than sin is a terrible thing. And that all the devices of men in religion are insufficient and unable and entirely incapable of affecting change. That believing in God absent repentance is a bad way. And so God comes in Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, and he makes a new way by a new creation and restores his people. It's the way of God that he will draw many to himself and justify them with full and complete pardon and forgiveness and lead them in his way, the new exodus. And so one of our great confessional statements at Grace Bible Church in this evil day is that Christ is our exodus. The only exodus, the only hope. The only way. In the words of Christ, I'm the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Uh, If this is your confession of faith, then I invite you uh, to partake richly and deeply of uh, the way of Christ uh, that includes the inauguration of a new covenant and a new covenant meal that you and I know is the sacrament of the Lord's table. Uh, we're reminded of this today because it is our tradition in the first Sunday of the month uh, to partake of the sacrament of the Lord's table. If you confess to know Christ your Savior and you are not living in known sin, then you are welcome to partake. Uh, Grace Bible Church, we believe in an open communion. Uh, that all who confess Christ as Savior, that all who walk in the way of the new exodus, uh, who are participants in his new work of the new creation, the creation of light and life in the life of the church, are invited to partake. Instituted for us by the Apostle Paul. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Reminder, it's inaugurated by the shedding of blood. Uh, The backdrop, of course, is the Passover meal. uh, That the head of the household killed a lamb and posted the blood of the lamb on the doorpost that the angel of death would cross over. Christ takes that feast and he abrogates it in himself and reinstitutes it in himself because he is the Lamb of God who sheds blood, who marks our lives, so that the angel of death can never get at us, because we are new creatures in Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning to read verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus and the night in which we was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, The Old Testament backdrop is, of course, uh, the manna provision of the wilderness. Christ takes that and abrogates it in himself. He is the bread of heaven. He comes and gives us uh, heavenly bread that we might participate 
in his spiritual presence and so be reminded of all the benefits that accrue to us in the cross. Reminded that uh, uh, because uh, he is bread of heaven, uh, we can eat him and live forever. Uh, It's a metaphor of having faith in Christ, of believing in Christ, and believing in Christ brings the gift of life everlasting, the greatest gift of all time. The greatest gift of all time is the forgiveness, total and complete forgiveness of all of our sins because of the one act of the righteous God-man upon the cross. We are coming this morning, ladies and gentlemen, to celebrate him, to fellowship with him by the coming of his great spirit, to remember him, to rejoice in the new covenant meal inaugurated by the shedding of blood. As I, uh, as I break the bread, I remind you that Christ is the bread of heaven. Uh, as the bread is passed to you, I would ask that you would hold it till which time all are served so that we will eat together to manifest the unity of Grace Bible Church and the unity of the universal church. Uh, If you need to confess sin, there will be an appropriate time while the bread is being passed for you to engage the Lord uh, in the silence of your own heart uh, because of the reminder that it's not a good thing to confess that you believe in God but to remain in sin. But then at some point, turn your heart to celebration, to joy, to dance, if you will, in your heart, because in the shedding of the blood of Christ, you are the forgiven sons of a righteous God. And so we come with a greater meal to rejoice, to celebrate. Let's prepare our hearts for the breaking of bread.